Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this opportunity that I have now to open up your word. Lord, to, to preach the gospel once again. Father, I pray for your help. Lord, I pray that you would bring understanding. Lord, not just to the mind, but to the heart. Lord, I pray that you would even bring new life. And Lord, that you would bring repentance. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, we would all have open hearts, open minds to hear what the Spirit says to our church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's been a few Sundays since we've been gathered together around the book of Genesis. And so I'm going to start this morning by giving you a a bit of context, kind of refreshing a little bit of what we have studied together. We are in the midst of Genesis chapter 3, which describes the tragic fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And I'll remind you that we took a a pretty extensive look at Genesis chapter 2, which describes for us the paradise of God in the Garden of Eden that God had made. And let me just say again, I love Genesis chapter 2. I wish Genesis chapter 2 could have been like four or five chapters long, just describing what it was like before sin entered into the world. What, what we read there is we, we found, we learned a lot of things, but the one thing I want to remind you of is that we saw just how permissive God was in the good garden that he had made. God gave his new children, Adam and Eve, a big playing field. Gave them a, a huge playing field with, where everything was in bounds except for one thing. There was only one thing that was out of bounds. He said not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God only gave one prohibition. And sadly, we see as we entered into Genesis chapter 3 that even with just one prohibition in a wide playing field, we, the, the human race, chose to disobey God's only rule and to rebel against the God who made us. We, we contemplated together how many sins did it take to lose paradise? How many sins did it take to lose paradise to be for Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden and to be separated from God? How many sins did it take? It only took one. We marveled at the holiness and the purity of our God that, that one sin causes someone to be separated from him. God is a holy God. And then in the aftermath of the fall, I'll remind you that we, we discussed just how merciful the Lord was in pursuing Adam and Eve. You know, uh, God could have, after Adam 
and Eve sinned and ate from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he could have just pulled back from them and, and sort of passive-aggressively said, fine, you wanted to break my, the one rule I gave you, you broke it. Now you're never going to hear from me again. You're never going to see, see me again. It's over. God could have righteously done that, but he didn't. Likewise, God could have shown up and just completely unleashed his righteous wrath on them for breaking his, his rule and falling into sin. But God didn't do that either. No, he pursued Adam and Eve. He called to them. He said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? And he called Adam and Eve to repentance. Mercifully, he called them to repentance. But they didn't. They did not repent. God called them to account, and they did not repent. They, they rather cowered. They hid from God. And when confronted with their sin, they blame shifted, right? God first went to Adam and he said, what is it that you have done? And Adam kind of, kind of shimmied around and then finally blamed Eve. And then so God turns to Eve and Eve quickly points to the serpent and blame shifts to the serpent. And this is where we pick up in our study in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. We come now to God's curse. And as we begin our study here, it's, I just want to make the observation that it is so important to understand, just for your life in general and for understanding the Bible in particular, that all of creation is under the curse of God because of Adam's sin. It's so important to understand this for your life. But before we, we kind of unpack that idea of why it's so important we need to talk a little bit about what is the curse. What do you mean that God has cursed his creation? Well, the first thing that I don't mean by that is I don't mean that God used filthy language. That's not the, what I mean by curse here. What, what I mean is a curse in the sense of that which is opposite to being blessed. Sometimes it's best to understand something by understanding what it's not, right? To curse something is really, if you understand what it means to be blessed, then to be cursed is the opposite of that. A curse is the removal of God's hand of blessing. And even more than that, it is the presence of his hand against you. We usually think of curses in the context of superstitions or fairy tales. You know, on, on our way to Lake Ann Camp last week, we stopped halfway to northern Michigan in the great city of Cleveland, Ohio. See, all you have to do is say Cleveland and people laugh. Why is that? Both of my parents and my grandparents actually settled in Cleveland many years ago. And my parents grew up in the great city of Cleveland before moving away for college and, and career reasons. And so what that means is that I grew up in the 80s and 90s watching Cleveland sports. Now, if you are a sports fan at all, you will know that that was really rough. <laughs> Cleveland fans have begun to, or had for many, many years, uh, they would speak of their, their city and their town superstitiously as having been cursed because for over 50 years, starting in 1964, Cleveland was unable to produce a championship team. 
in any of the, th the three major sports that they had, football, basketball, baseball. And it was, they would always get like right up to the, the verge of having a victory only to have it like snatched from them, right? And there were these amazing plays that the other team would have that would become iconic uh, against Cleveland. And so we all began to believe that our team was cursed. Now, of course, this is superstitious nonsense, right? Cleveland kept losing for so many years because they're Cleveland, not because they were cursed. But let me tell you, when we're, when we're looking at the Bible and we're talking about our, our creator God and we speak of the fact that God has cursed his creation, it's not a joke. And neither is it a, a superstition or a, a fairy tale. God alone has the power to bless and to curse. You know, in, in Numbers chapter 6, I often at the close of our service will read a benediction from God's word, a, a word of blessing. And, you know, one of my favorite ones is from Numbers chapter 6. It goes like this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want God's face shining on you in blessing? Who doesn't want God to lift up his countenance upon you and to give you his shalom, to give you his peace? Everybody wants that. But what the Bible tells us is that because of Adam's sin, we are cursed. It's the exact opposite of what you read here in Numbers chapter 6. So imagine for a moment that instead of reading a blessing over you, that this, this communicated God's curse upon you. What if this said something like this? The Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord make his righteous anger to burn against you and give you exactly what you deserve. The Lord hide his countenance from you and remove all your peace. Can you imagine that? That's what the Bible tells us, that we are under the curse of God because of sin. This is God removing his hand of blessing, and by contrast, he is actively against us because of sin. He is actively putting his creation, subjecting it to futility, bondage, and death as a punishment. This is far from the paradise and the harmony that God originally intended to exist in the world. And no, make no mistake, this is God's curse. You know, um, this is not Satan's curse. In fact, we're going to see in just a moment that to the contrary, Satan is the first one to be cursed. You know, in fairy tales and, and that sort of thing, it's usually the evil character that comes in and lays a curse on everybody and then it's for some nefarious reason and then the, the knight in shining armor has to come in and somehow find a way to lift the curse. But you need to understand that because of our sin, we are the evil ones. God in his righteousness is inflicting a curse in his righteousness and in his justice. so often misunderstand God's holiness and his purity and his justice. If God had not punished sin, he would not have been good. He would not have been just. And so you must understand 
what it means to be cursed by God, and you must understand why God did it. He did it because he is righteous. He, he had warned Adam that sin would bring death, and here it is. <laughs> Behold, it does. And so one thing that I know for certain is that when God blesses something, this may sound like a really obvious statement, but I really want to underline it. When God blesses something, it is blessed. And on the other hand, when, when God curses something, it is cursed. Right, you, would, you would do a better job of holding back the ocean with a broom than you would to curse something that God has blessed or, on the other hand, to bless something that God has cursed. Who can stand against what God has said? You know, when Israel was approaching the promised land, one of the, the neighboring countries of Moab looked out and saw the people of God coming and they were under the blessing of God and they were defeating armies left and right. And that, the king of that country just became struck with fear. He, he, he realized that his doom was coming and so he called upon a pagan prophet named Balaam and he told Balaam to curse God's people. You, you know this story from the book of Numbers? I hope, I hope you do. If, if you don't, you can go and read it in Numbers chapter 23. The king of Moab asks the prophet Balaam to curse God's people. And so Balaam repeatedly tries to curse God's people as the king has requested, only to find that when he stood up to curse God's people, all he had was a blessing to give. And he said this in Numbers 23.8, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? When God blesses, something is blessed. And when he curses, it is cursed. If we glance over our text this morning, you'll see that God begins by cursing the serpent in verses 14 and 15. But he doesn't stop there. In verse, uh, 15, in verse 16, he extends the curse to the woman. And then in verses 17 through 19, he extends it to the man, to Adam. And, and we understand from the rest of Scripture that this curse affects all of God's creation. Romans 8 says that the creation was subjected to futility. And that the creation is in bondage to corruption. And that the whole of creation is groaning under the curse. And so... Now that we understand a little bit better of what, the cur what it means to be cursed by God, I want to go back to my original, my original assertion here, and, and that is this. All of creation is under the curse of God because of, of Adam's curse. And why is that an important thing to understand? First, it's important to have an accurate diagnosis of a problem, isn't it? Accurate diagnosis of a problem is key. If you don't understand the problem, how can you ever begin to find the solution? I was talking with someone just this week in a coffee shop who fatally misunderstood the diagnosis of the problem of what we as human beings are in. This person thought that, that she was good. But... We are under a curse. You need to understand the problem before you can understand the solution. 
The curse is the answer to why life is so hard and frustrating and futile and why life ends in the loss of all things through death. You know, we, we want so badly to flourish and to be blessed and to escape all these consequences, but try as we might, these consequences overtake all of us. You know, if it feels like your life is cursed sometimes, it's because it is. <laughs> you need look no further than Genesis chapter 3 to understand why the world is the way it is. But not only does this explain why things are the way they are, it also lets you know there is a problem that needs to, that needs to be resolved. Secondly, you may be blind or in denial to this fact. You know, don't say, God would never curse me. I've never done anything worthy of a curse. But you need to understand that Adam's sin put us all, as a human race, in a position of being cursed. We were conceived in this position, and we came out of the womb in this position of being cursed, shaking our fists at God. And this is something we, because we were born into it, we may not even realize it. You know, just last week I was up in northern Michigan, and I don't know if you've ever had the, the privilege of being able to see the Great Lakes. But let me tell you, the, the water is, is crystal clear. This is me, my wife, standing up on, on a, a sand dune overlooking Lake Michigan. You can actually see to the bottom if it's shallow enough. It's just crystal clear. And I got to thinking about it. If I were a fish... I would want to live in Lake Michigan, even though it's a little cold. Because you could see, man, you could see clearly. But by contrast, yesterday I was out fishing in a lake here in, in uh, New Jersey, and it was, man, it was just like a, any other lake. It was, it was murky and dirty. And I thought, man, these poor fish, they spend their whole existence, and they can only see a couple inches right in front of their face. If I were a fish, I would want to be in Lake Michigan. But that's the way it is. You know, those, I, I, wondered, I thought to myself, I wonder if these fish can ever even conceive of a place like Lake Michigan, you know? A place where you can see clearly and not, not be in this cloudy, murky mess all day. You know, we were born under the curse. It's like we were born in murky water, and sometimes I don't think we even realize how murky the water is. And I wonder if anyone has ever pointed out to you that the water is murky in life because of what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Because God has placed all of creation under a curse. I think once you understand the problem, you see it clearly, then the solution then comes into focus. So what I want to do here is dive into the curse itself. We're not going to have time to work our way all the way through this passage this morning. Uh, but I do want to get into the first two verses together as we look at God as he turns from questioning Adam and Eve to the serpent here in verse 14. Let's read it together. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
Notice that the, the Lord doesn't question the serpent the way he does Adam and Eve. He just immediately turns to him and begins to curse him. He says, cursed are you above all livestock. This doesn't mean that we should be snake slayers, by the way. I don't think that, we're, that God is calling us to go out and, and uh, destroy all the snakes. But I do believe that God is cursing the serpent here because the, the serpent was used as the tool of Satan in the fall of man. And the serpent remains a constant, visible reminder of, of who our enemy is, our enemy Satan. And I think we can understand from this that our enemy is crafty and dangerous, and he's still, so to speak, slithering around the world, and he's as, as dangerous and, and crafty as ever. Yet, according to this curse that we read here, he is, God cursed him to, to slither around on his belly. But according to this curse, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The, the serpent, who is Satan, literally eats the dust because one day Satan will bite the dust. He will be defeated, right? That's what we can take away from this. I mean, we're like, you might read this and say, why is God cursing the serpents, you know, making them crawl on the ground? You know, there could be all sorts of questions about that. But if you understand that the serpent is Satan and you understand that God has cursed him to, to a lowly place, a place uh, underfoot, it, crawling around in the dust, licking the dust all the days of his life, and one day he will be defeated. He will bite the dust. We see here hope even in the first few words of the curse. Our enemy, Satan, will be defeated. And as you um, read the very next verse here, verse 15, Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says he's going to put enmity or hostility between the serpent and the woman between the, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. You know, the, the woman and the serpent got pretty chummy during the fall, right? They kind of colluded together to rebel against God, but God breaks that up. And he says, no, there's going to be enmity and hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the key thing you need to know to understand this verse is this word offspring, in the original Hebrew in which this was written, this word is singular. It's singular. Now, when we read that in English, you know, the word offspring can be singular or plural. So I have two kids, but if I say I have offspring, I could be referring to one, one or many kids because that's just the way the word works in English. But in the original Hebrew, it, was, it could e either be singular or plural. And the, the cool thing is here in, in Genesis 3.15 that this word is singular. It's not referring to, this, to the all the offspring of the women, plural, the offsprings of the woman. It's referring singularly to one seed of the woman in particular. And lest you think I'm being too picky here, Paul talks about this as well in Genesis chapter 3, 16. He says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
it does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul makes a big deal here in Genesis about God making his promises to Abraham and to his offspring singular. Hang with me here. I know this is a lot of grammar. God made his promises to Abraham and his offspring who Paul connects to Christ. And I'm making the exact same point in Genesis 3.15. And and Paul is, is making the exact same point here. He's only dropping into that promise further downstream. He's talking about it. He's tracing it through, through Abraham. But it's the same promise that the offspring or the seed of the woman would one day come and defeat the serpent. The text in Genesis 3 goes on to say this. This seed of the woman, this offspring singular of the woman, he singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Not necessarily in that order. The word bruise here can also mean to strike or to crush. It's the same word here. The the seed of the woman is going to bruise his head and and, um, the serpent is going to bruise his heel. It's the same word. It, it, there's not a difference in the, the wound that's being inflicted, but what is different is the location of the bruising. You'll notice that the seed of the woman will crush or defeat the head of the serpent. And meanwhile, the serpent will only bruise or strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And so all that to say, hopefully you were able to track with me through that. We have here at the very beginning of the curse a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed of the woman promised here in Genesis 3.15. He is the one promised offspring of Eve that would one day come and crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. God promises it right from the, right from the outset here of, of the curse. And I, I just can't emphasize to you enough here that because of this promise, there is already a glimmer of hope. A commentator by the name of Sidney Gradanis said this. He said, Genesis traces this seed of the woman from Adam to Seth, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and Judah, and then the rest of the Bible will follow the trail to King David and then ultimately to Jesus Christ. Christians from as early as the second century have referred to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first, evangelium meaning gospel. This is the first gospel in the Bible. It's the first time that Jesus is promised. And I think significantly, even, even above and beyond all this, is the fact that Jesus himself identifies himself as the serpent crusher in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus identifies himself as the serpent crusher. If you could leave your hand in Genesis chapter 3 and flip over to John chapter 3, I want you to see this in your Bibles. 
You probably know John 3.16, but do you know the immediate context, John 3.14 and 15? Jesus says something really curious here. Let's read these verses. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is he talking about? <laughs> if, you're, if you're not familiar with this story from the Old Testament, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. It's from Numbers chapter 21. And I'll give you a short summary of it here. Where the, when the children of Israel were wandering around in the desert on their way to the promised land, they began to grumble against God and against Moses, saying things like, Why have you brought us out of Egypt into this barren desert? There's no food, there's no water. And the food that God is providing, we loathe. It's worthless. They were grumbling against God. And so in response to their their grumbling sin, God sends fiery serpents among the people, and the serpents begin to bite many people, and many people begin to die because of it. And so the people come to Moses confessing their sins, and they ask Moses to pray and to ask God to take away the serpents. And so Moses does that. He prays, and then God tells him uh, to take, he says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses takes an image of a serpent, and he puts it on a pole, and he lifts it up. And all the people had to do, when they found themselves bitten by by one of these fiery, venomous serpents out in the wilderness, and they began to die, all they had to do was look at the serpent, and they would live all he had to do, look and live. And Jesus here takes up this imagery from this story in the Old Testament. And he says, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus connects himself to a serpent. Why is that? Why is that? Well, if you can see here for a moment the symbolism from Genesis chapter 3, God, when Jesus was on the cross, God made Jesus to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the key. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, completely sinless, in and of himself, God took the sinful curse and the punishment for that curse and placed it on Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus, in a sense, became a serpent for us on the cross. And there he defeated the serpent. He crushed the head of the serpent there on the cross. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman whose heel was bruised by the serpent on the cross. But that bruise of the serpent was not ultimately defeating because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over death. And in doing this, Jesus struck his blow to the head of the serpent, defeating sin, death, and the curse itself. He took the curse on himself 
so that we wouldn't have to. All you have to do is look and live. Jesus compared himself to that serpent, lifted up, that people might look to him and live. All you have to do is look to Jesus and be saved because of what he has done. Have you ever looked to the Lord Jesus and received eternal life? If not, you can do that today and be forgiven of your sins. It's the promise, the fulfillment of the promise from so many years before that was being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me speak to you also who have already looked and lived. You might say, man, I'm really going through it right now. You might be thinking, Pastor Stan's telling me that Satan was defeated on the cross, but man, Satan sure feels like he's having a heyday with my life right now. Sure doesn't feel like my enemy is defeated. Let me just encourage you this morning. It is true that for now, Satan is a fearsome foe from our perspective. In fact, Peter describes him as a roaring lion. He's just roaming the earth looking to see whom he can devour. But be reminded this morning that he is already defeated. As Martin Luther put it in, in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you thank you for, uh, Lord, the promises that we read throughout your scriptures, Lord, but we thank you for so quickly extending to us the promise of Jesus in the face of the curse for our sin. God, I thank you for, uh, Lord, dealing with our sin so, so finally on the cross. Lord, you didn't just sweep our sin under the rug, but Lord, you dealt with it. Jesus paid our sins. Father, all that we need to do is look to you and live. God, I pray for each person who's here this morning within the sound of my voice. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who, Lord, is alarmed to hear that they are under the curse because of sin and have never received eternal life, God, I pray that they would hear clearly today the good news that all they need to do is look to Jesus and live. Father, I pray for those who are here in our midst this morning who are, are walking through deep, deep trials right now. Father, I pray that you would assure your people or that the first one to be cursed was Satan and that his doom, his defeat is certain. God, I pray that you would give us victory over trial, give us victory over temptation. Lord, help us to persevere. And Lord, please hold us fast. Finish the good work that you've started in our hearts. Lord, we trust in you for that. Minister, Lord, to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.